Infirmary Media. Start. People engage in stop for dueling decades. The Matrix and Blade versus Bloodsport and Renegade. Strap on that cap, bust out the power glove. Come fight for what you love. Dueling decades. Hoop culture popping pins, dropping hand grenades. Van Halen locked in Mortal Kombat with David Gray. Van out ballet and sick. I am made of GNR. Come fight for what you love. Dueling decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York Studios, it's the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. I am Mark James, and this week I will be representing November of 1994 alongside these other duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, trying to continue his four-game win streak, say hello to Man Crush. That's right. Let's see if I can make it five. I don't think I even, in my hot stretches, I don't think I had a five. But I have uh, November of 1974. And before I move on, I just wanted to give a shout-out to Juan Asbel Lozano, who is judged every episode this year. I got to give him props because every, every week he sends me a message. This is what he thinks. So thank you, Juan, for that. Uh, we'll send you another shirt or something, because I know we sent him one already, because he's awesome. Also on the panel this week, welcome back to the program, MC Mike Ranger. Hello, everyone. I'm Mike Ranger, and I'm representing of November of 1984. And uh, let me remind everybody that a, a flute with no holes is not a flute, and a donut with no holes is a Danish. <laughs> And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So this week's celebrity guest judge is the multi-talented actor, comedian, and sometimes fortune teller, who also is the man that Scott Simon of NPR once called the best impressionist of our times. And I tend to agree with him. All rise for Judge Jim Meskimen. Woo. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I tell you what, I'm I'm glad to be the decider. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie, after all five rounds, we will go to a final wildcard round. All right, duelers, you better check yourself before you riggedy wreck yourself, because it's time to play more Dueling Decades. All right, let's go right down to Jim Meskimen for the coin toss for this first battle. Right, so I'm going to give you my Kevin Costner impression because I'm going to point out that the back of this quarter has a longhorn steer on it, and the front of it, of course, has George Washington. So the question is, will it be a bull or will it be George? Here we go. You call it, Mike. Well, I'm all about the head. <laughs> Heads it is. All right. All right, Mike Ranger, you won the coin toss and get to select our first category. Where are we going, man? I'm going to go with TV. I've heard of that. On November 2nd, 1984, on ABC, 
the sixth episode of the second season of the hit sitcom Webster aired. After Webster burns down the Papadopoulos' high-rise Chicago apartment with his science kit in episode five, they must now look for a new home. So in episode six, Webster, George, and Ma'am look into renting a Victorian home. This home was rented to them by Bill and Cassie Parker, who moved into the basement apartment. This was the, the main residence for the rest of the series run. Um, now, in this particular house, there is a series of secret passageways. And what makes this episode stand out for me is that this is the first time that you actually see that. And that's what I remember when I think of Webster is all these like these secret passageways and like the few episodes yes. where, you know, he, he utilizes them. And I thought that that was like an important episode to to particular to highlight, because when I think of Webster, that's what I think of. You think of secret passages? I think of secret passageways because I always wanted them in my house. Mm. At least they had the continuity enough because you know what I hated with 80s sitcoms? Some of them had no continuity from one episode to the other, so they might have burnt down the house, but then the next episode they just went back to it. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> like in Different Strokes where uh, you know Dudley visits, visits the bike shop and next episode he's at school. <laughs> <laughs> like everything's fine. Yeah, nothing happened. Nothing to see here. No, no. All right, Man Crush, what do you have for the television round? All right, so let's go to November 16th and 18th of 1974. This is a big one for television, but it's actually a major motion picture on television for the first time. Please keep in mind, this is 1974, so there were really no cable movie channels readily available. HBO was around in 1972, but it was only available via satellite and hardly anybody had them and they were completely unreliable at the time. There were also no titles to be had on video cassette. That wouldn't happen until 1976. So for this movie to be on a national television channel just two years after its release, this was a huge deal. Such a big deal, in fact, that NBC paid $10 million, twice the price that it actually paid for Gone with the Wind, which they couldn't even broadcast till 1976 so they were like mortgaging that one for like four or five years before they even got to play it but that's around 53 million dollars in 2020 so this is a steal because commercial spots for this movie they were two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars a piece it's about 1.2 million dollars in 2020 per spot i want to guess i want to guess which one it was <laughs> is that the game not yet the game wrong no, because you'll probably get well, I have this. to say so, what is and then the title? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Here, if you can get it after this, this paragraph, we'll see what happens. So this is a pretty violent movie, especially for the time and at times in the movie. But NBC was, they were able to keep most of that violence for intact for most of the broadcast. So according to this article that I found in the LA Times, viewers could expect to see the same thing that roughly 150 million people saw when this was in theaters. Obviously, sans any cursing or nudity. But this was like a huge concern for viewers at the time, as what I was reading in the papers, because two weeks prior, ABC played Midnight Cowboy. And apparently, they cut so much of that movie out that they should have renamed it Campfire Buckaroo. <laughs> but <laughs> this, uh, this story, it's about, let's see if you know this one now. So it's a story about an organized it's crime family. It's the Godfather. Family. It's got to be the Godfather. It's the Godfather. It's the second best movie on IMDb, which is, has an amazing 9.1 out of 10 with 1.5 million votes. Uh, it received absurd ratings the two nights it aired. Nationally, the film had a 37 rating with a 61% share 
Uh, in New York alone, it did a 49.1 with a 71% share. In LA, it did 44 and a 66% share. So it looks like NBC did something right here in 1974 with the world television premiere of The Godfather. All right. Well, for my pick, we'll talk about something else that NBC did right. November 3rd, 1994. We're going to go to a special event called Blackout Thursday. And we can thank the promotions department from NBC for this, although they're really not sure who they can blame and or take credit for this because no one has come forth to say, oh, this was my idea. Um, they think it was just somebody in the promotions department came out with the great idea to have all of the sitcoms that night featuring a blackout. So we had Mad About You, Friends, and Seinfeld. And of course, Seinfeld wanted no part of this nonsense. He refused to uh, take part in this. The fun began on Mad About You when Jamie Buckman, of course, played by Helen Hunt, starts a citywide power outage after she's messing with the cable hookups on top of her roof. The fun continued on with an episode of Friends, and this is what my pick is. It's the one with the blackout, season one, episode seven of Friends. It's one of the greatest all-time episodes of Friends. Matter of fact, the entire cast, this is like their all-time favorite episode. Wow. And it's this episode alone is probably the reason that the term friend zone became popular in the mid-90s anyway. It's the first appearance uh, where Phoebe actually plays in Central Perk. Uh, we also have the first appearance of Paolo, who's a reappearing character. So it's a pinnacle episode for the TV show Friends. And it's one of my favorite episodes as well. So the one with the blackout, November 3rd, 1994. Wow. That's what I've got for the television round. So let's toss it down to Jim Meskimen. Wow. Gee, it's, 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 yeah, it's hard to, you know, you wouldn't think that anything could top Webster. <laughs> it's a secret passage. <laughs> Mystery is so intoxicating. Uh, that's interesting about that Friends program. Uh, you know, my, uh, I was on Friends one time, not that episode. Uh, and my wife and I cycled through uh, and watched all the Friends episodes. I don't remember that one. I must have blacked it out. But my sister <laughs> is one of the writers on that show, and I'll have to ask her about that one. Yes. I've not seen that. But um, let me see. I'm going to utilize my celebrity wheel of fortune here to deliver the final verdict. I'm going to pick a celebrity. It's going to be Robin Williams. Okay, well, you know, you have to go back pretty far in time to find something that NBC did right. But um, <laughs> they certainly did something right right there in the 70s. <laughs> Oh, Luca Brazzi sleeps with the sponsors. <laughs> do you remember that? I actually do remember seeing it. And I'll tell you something I remember because I, you know, I'm a, I'm a child of the 60s and the 70s were when I watched tons of television prior to cable. And I remember that that airing of The Godfather Part One. And they did a very clever, brilliant marketing thing. They advertised Godfather Two. Uh, as part of that, right at the end, if, if memory serves. And they did it with a kind of trailer that was exceedingly uh, magnetic. It, it just locked your attention because it was not scenes as trailers today are. It was still photographs that would go to black, still photographs, still photographs. You saw Robert De Niro with the flaming towel after he's just assassinated the guy, you know, and all these images and all, of course, it all looks beautiful. And you've just seen that world 
And now you're seeing, it was like, oh, forget it. You know, it just made Godfather 2. Even if Godfather 2 had not been another masterpiece, it certainly would have uh, skyrocketed it at the box office. So NBC actually did something right. Because we've covered them quite a few times where they- <laughs> Got to go back a few decades screwed the pooch. To, to see it. But it, it, it did happen once or twice. <laughs> Excellent. All right, Man Crush, you pick up a point in the first round, but more importantly, you take control of the board. What category are we going with next? All right, let's go with news. Let's go with news here. We're going to go to November 14th of 1974, and I went with some television news here because, as my colleagues know, number one, I don't like bringing the sadness to the show. And I've said this before when covering the 70s, it was a very dark time. You cannot go a single page in a newspaper without seeing some heinous shit happening. And for somebody that was a baby in 1978, it's hard for me to fathom what the 70s were really like because, you know, I was a baby. But if I were to gauge these things by what was reported, it was nuts. It was like just lawlessness. Every paper you pick up, every single page. Just as just as, just to break in for a second, as the oldest person on the podcast, I just want to say that it it was ever thus. All decades are like that. If you read the papers, it looks like just a psychotic, uh, you know, <laughs> massacre. I'm glad. I'm glad because it's it's really bad when we cover this a lot. Like I get the '80s quite a bit, and the '80s doesn't have the same feel as when I'm flipping through the paper in the '70s. I'm just shocked by the things that I read, and I always clip stuff out and I send it to these guys because I. Don't think I could top it. And then two pages later, I top it. It's just, it's crazy. But I didn't live through it, so I don't know. So I'll, I'll have to take your word for it there. But, uh, you know, I might be saving all those stories for a spinoff that we've been talking about, but I'll save those atrocities for then. But instead, here's a story that started off badly for one guy, but it became a gem for the rest of us. It was, we'll just say it was for the greater good. And that, it's not NBC this time. And this is, uh, the title of this article is CBS gives up on Sands. CBS TV announced this week that it will replace Saturday night half-hour comedy series Paul Sands in Friends and Lovers. The network will be replacing that show with a spinoff of a popular laugh series of All in the Family. That new show will be titled The Jeffersons, and that will debut on January the 18th. 11 seasons, 253 episodes, lots of accolades here, and the best theme song ever. Yeah. Would you like to sing this one, Mark? Do I want to sing it? <laughs> That's what Come he said. On. We're moving on up. Moving on up. Ooh. There you go. Get that Ooh. soul. But aside, aside from being a popular show, the Jeffersons did some monumental things over that 10-year span. Wheezy, of course, uh, Isabel Sanford, she was the first black woman to win an Emmy for a lead actress in a comedy. It had the first ever transgender character on a sitcom where George's Army buddy, Eddie, became Edie and on the series finale of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air in 1996, George and Wheezy, they're the couple that buys the bank's house. So they had some pretty iconic tie-ins and that spanned three different decades, but this is the announcement of the Jeffersons. And to me, this comes full circle because I had the cancellation of the Jeffersons on an episode, probably like a year ago, or maybe at the beginning of the summer. It must summer be a tender moment for you. Yeah, it really is. It's uh, making me uh, tear up a little bit. Well, so I'm just going to He's stop. moving on up. So, <laughs> finally got a piece. <laughs> All right, Mike Ranger, what do you have for the news round? 
Well, I'm glad you asked, Mark, because I can't wait to tell you. Because, see, I found an article in the New York... Um, no, I didn't. Never mind. Let me restart that. Strike that. Reverse it. I found an article in the York Daily Record on Wednesday, November 21st, 1984. This was written by Associated Press writer Jill Lawrence. She writes, It was a beautiful day in the neighborhood, Tuesday, as the Smithsonian Institution accepted a bright red cardigan sweater from Mr. Rogers, the kindest, coziest, and least excitable host on daytime television, and goes on to say that the sweater will join Archie Bunker's wing chair, a Kermit the Frog puppet, and other memorable objects on display. At the time of this article, Mr. Rogers had been on the air for 21 years and had, seen by, and had been seen by 7 million families weekly. The famous sweater was knitted by hand for, for Mr. Rogers by his own mother, and Mr. Rogers is quoted as saying, We all long for honesty. I would hope I can give children one more honest adult in their lives. The final episode was taped in Pittsburgh at WQED on December 1st, 2000 and aired on August 31st, 2001 after 38 years of original broadcast. Remember, boys and girls, you made this day a special day by being you. <laughs> Touched. Nice. All right. So for my news story, we're going to go over to the Tampa Tribune, November 15th, 1994, in an article where the headline reads, Stones Rolling Onto the Internet. Out of Los Angeles, the Rolling Stones are zooming into the information superhighway as the biggest live rock and roll concert ever broadcast on the Internet Computer Network. The Friday concert in Dallas will be made available in full color for Internet users around the world. Internet users will receive 6 to 10 frames per second of video in full-color resolution at 320 by 248 bit video. Vocalist Mick Jagger is uh, an info freak and spends a lot of time on the Internet, so of course he wanted to do this and jump ahead in the Rolling Stones to be the first band to broadcast live on the Internet. Well, actually, the honor of being the first band goes to a Seattle band called Sky Cries Mary, whose manager heard about the Rolling Stones doing this and then beat them to it by about a week. Well, you, you can't always get what you want, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> but if you try sometimes. Would it hurt you to try? Would it hurt you to try sometimes? <laughs> <laughs> so that's my news story. The Rolling Stones attempting to be the first band to ever broadcast a live concert on the Internet. So let's go down to Jim Meskimen for the ruling on the news round. Wow, those are three very auspicious events. Let's see, let's go over them again. The first one was uh, the debut of the Jeffersons, a series that ran 11 seasons and was very groundbreaking. And the end of Paul's, was Paul Sands' show? That's what can't cancel? Was, wasn't he an improv guy, Paul Sands? Or am I confusing him with? I don't even know. He was on uh, Friends and Lovers. Whatever that was, yeah. I'm sure it was a short stay. But the, the bizarre thing was it didn't even have that bad of ratings. They said it was in the top 20 every night. Well, they just arbitrarily change these things sometimes. Yeah. Uh, probably. I mean, you never know who they're trying to please. And maybe they had to deal with because uh, uh, the Jeffersons, is that a Norman Lear show? I think it was. So it was. Maybe yep. they wanted to be in bed with Norman Lear and who wouldn't <laughs> on a cold night. Uh, well, gosh, that's very important. And, but I gotta say, you know, there's a tender spot in my heart for Mr. Rogers. And I did not know that that sweater of his was knitted by his mother. I mean, that's pretty intense. It's feel good. It's feel good stuff right there. Yeah. That's the uh, stuff. And I, I, though I respect the Rolling Stones and I'm a fan, I am not a devotee. 
And the fact that they didn't really get there first and that the, 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 the Seattle grunge hogs scooted ahead of them <laughs> and pulled that off. Uh, hats off to them, but Mick. I don't know. It zipped ahead of me. It's crazy. It's crazy. If we'd been there first, it would have really been amazing. But anyway, so I got to say, I'm going to give the nod to Mr. Hodges in the neighborhood, baby. You know, that does explain why he took such good care of that sweater and always took yeah. it off. Yeah, always put it away. It makes sense yeah. now. Hung yeah. it up nice and neat. Nice and neat in the closet so that nobody would run their greasy hands on it. <laughs> you never you never saw him in, after lunch saying, wasn't that a l- delicious meal? I just wiped my mouth with my sweater. That's okay. Perfectly never. okay to do that. You never well, said you that. Gotta change it later. You're gonna, so. you're gonna get a dry clean every week. <laughs> That's right. His mother did it. God, I got sweater. Like I wear this sweater all the time around the house. It's probably like twenty years old. It's torn to shreds. So I can't even imagine how old that sweater must be if his mother did it. But it was made. It was yeah. a made. She made condition. it really to last, though. That that would have really been that did. generation. They would have made it to last. I, I we have stuff that my my mother my my wife's. grandmother made you know it's stuff is it's firm it's they they didn't it was they didn't have this transitory view of of items and objects and clothing it was like no no this is gonna this should last for 50 years minimum wear and tear (laughs) you can wear the you wear this to the casket that's right i'm gonna be i'm gonna be buried in this tablecloth if everything goes right (laughs) all right mike ranger you pick up a point and tie the game take control of the board where are we going for our final one-point round? I think we're going to go with music, Mark. Alrighty. All right. So on November 12th, 1984, music fans around the globe were touched for the very first time with the release of Madonna's second album, Like a Virgin. The album consisted of five singles, including the number one, Like a Virgin, and the number two hit, Material Girl. The album has gone on to be certified diamond and cemented Madonna as a pop icon. Many critics cite Like a Virgin as the defining moment of Madonna's career, but also point out that if you and your friends are trying to balance the forces of good and evil, you may want to hand that amulet to someone else. Because this virgin has been touched many, many times. (laughs) (laughs) Allegedly. Did you say it was certified uh, diamond and cement? Um, yes, actually. <laughs> no. It's the top of the chart and the bottom of the chart at the same time. It's the lowest ratings and the highest ratings. Yeah, it started at, at the top and, and floated towards the bottom. It floated slowly towards the bottom. Okay. All right, Man Crush, what do you have for the music round? All right, so let's go to November 8th, 1974. Here's this band's third studio album from a Hall of Fame band. And I'm glad this one came up because, and I'm almost embarrassed to admit this. I don't think this band has ever come up on the show ever. I, I try to think about it. I should go back to sounder and do the transcription research, but off the top of my head, I'm going to say, no, you can fact check me later, Mark. All right. But, uh, it's a travesty of epic proportions that this didn't ever come up. Is that up the name the of the band? Travesty of epic proportions? No, but that would be a great <laughs> I didn't band. I know they were in name. the hall of fame. <laughs> In Seattle, they uh, they were the first band to go online. Uh, but <laughs> let's try to right the wrongs here. Let's uh, try to win this round. But this album, which is it's a lot more pop glam rock than their first two albums, 
It's what really launched this band into the stratosphere. And let me make this perfectly clear. I'm not saying that they would have never achieved that Hall of Fame status eventually, but this album right here, this is like a watershed moment. And this featured the band's first international hit single. Uh, more than that, one song is basically the inspiration behind thrash metal. So without this one track on this, who knows what Metallica would have been doing or what they would have sounded like. Uh, but the band put their all into this 38-minute album. They had to at this point. If you saw the movie that was about them from a couple of years ago, there's a particular scene where they're talking to their label, which is Trident Records, and they needed to make this work because these guys were living on two pennies rubbing together at that point, even though this is a third album, and Trident felt like they were losing money on their investment. So the band went for broke. It was all or nothing. And I mentioned pop glam rock before, but this album has a bit of everything on it. You got glam, like I said, you got hard rock, prog, insane vocals, harmonies. And that first international hit, Killer Queen, that hit number 12 on the Billboard Hot 100. And the song, which was not even a single, Stone Cold Crazy has been called the grandpappy of thrash. Of course, inspired Metallica, who are the fathers of thrash. I present to you the first time Queen has ever been selected on this show. Sheer Heart Attack, released November 8th, 1974. Wow. In the lap of the gods, too. I mean, it's not even a single or anything. Amazing song. That's really nice. That's a great a story of epic luck. Yeah, for real. An intention. Nice. Okay. All right. So for my music selection, we're going to go over to the Atlanta Constitution in a newspaper November 14th, 1994, for an article where the headline reads, TLC toys with a little bit of everything. A skin showing, faces flawless and funky, pro-independent, lyrics intact. Atlanta's TLC is back with a sensual look that will give salt and pepper a run for their money. Get over it as their attitude screams. Get over the Vibe magazine cover. Get over the R&B rap acts retooled glamour. And please get over Lisa Left Eye Lopez's current situation. Crazy Sexy Cool, the follow-up album to their near triple platinum debut album, is in stores Tuesday. But the music is probably the last thing on people's minds, as a lot has happened since their cartoonish-looking trio's 1992 debut album. So this is Crazy Sexy Cool by TLC. This album would uh, kind of top their previous album. Uh, it w This one went, uh, let's see, 12 times platinum. So this one went diamond. Uh, it peaked at number three on the Billboard 200, and then it stayed parked there for over two years. But did they go cement is what I want to know. <laughs> they didn't. They did not go cement. I wish they did, but, you know, uh, this made TLC the first girl group in history to ever reach diamond status. Uh, and since then, the album Crazy Sexy Cool has sold over 14 million copies worldwide, and that happens to make it the best-selling album by an American girl group. So wow. it's uh, been featured on the Rolling Stones top greatest 500 albums of all times and just the accolades go on and on. Of course, we got the uh the epic singles on that one Creep and Waterfalls as well as Red Light Special and Digging on You. Saw the band reunite with uh Kenneth Babyface Edmonds and Jermaine Dupree to just put out a funky fresh album as the kids say. So crazy sexy cool November 15th, 1994. Wow, how did I miss that? 
<laughs> that was the year I worked on the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. You, you'd think I would have heard that. You know, if something goes 12 times platinum, chances are a girl you dated or married had this album. That's. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask my I'm going to go through my wife's albums right as soon as we're done here. Uh, I feel I feel contrite about not knowing anything about that music. That's definitely within my lifetime. Just don't go chasing waterfalls. Stick to the rivers <laughs> and the lakes. The it would never occur right? to me to chase a waterfall. <laughs> I think I've always been very content to just sit and look at them. I don't know. Maybe that's that's a that's a personal flaw. I'm sure. Well, I guess I have to. I mean, I have to be true to my own viewpoint on this. Um, uh, and Madonna, you know, I was. I have two minds about Madonna. She's extraordinarily capable and, you know, an amazing performer and, uh, you know, all, uh, deserves all the credit she's got. I just don't particularly like to consume her music. Let's see. Let me, maybe I can get a little help from a celebrity to help me work this out. This is a tough one. This is a tough one. Okay, Javier Bardem. So Javier Bardem should be able to help us with this because he's so uninvolved completely with uh, American culture. And I think, though, that he would probably say at the end of the day that uh, uh, Crazy Sexy Cool is a magnificent milestone uh, for culture. And uh, I think he, rather than myself, Javier Bardem, is extremely uh, familiar with this music and with these girls. I would think that Javier Bardem would be extremely familiar with TLC. I would think so, too. That is why I allow him to make the the adjudication that this... (laughs) (laughs) he's the winner all right well that means the game is tied up at one point apiece going into the first two point round and i have that even happen how does that even happen (laughs) (laughs) i take control of the board you know what guys ah man we got movies and we have hot products left i said we do some hot products okay so for Hot Products, I went over to the Lompic Record in Lompic, California, and I wanted to take a look at what was popular for VHS tapes, what people were buying in the stores, what were the top sales, and more importantly, the top rentals. So I looked at the whole month, and you know, Jurassic Park was out there on VHS, mm. and that was selling really well and renting well. And then on November 18th, a movie came out for purchase and for rental, and it kicked Jurassic Park right out of the top 10 rentals. It took the number one spot, and at the same week, it was the number one movie that you could own on VHS. For the low, low price of like $12.95, you could buy the Keanu Reeves classic Speed ah. and own that right in your VHS collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, uh, that beat out Nightmare Before Christmas, Dark Crystal, and of course, Jurassic Park. Now, if you're you know, wondering about the authenticity of my statistics and my list. There is a note here at the end of the article. It says the video bestsellers list and the top rentals list was compiled by Melody at Blockbuster Video, 375 North Hollywood Street. So Melanie who? It just says Melanie. They don't give a last name. Oh, that's it's very, just Melanie. That's very man. suspicious. That's very suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> They're protecting her identity. So that's my hot product, Speed on VHS. Bring it home today. Okay. Good one. Twelve ninety nine. All right, Mike Ranger, what do you have? Well, Mark, uh, on November 13th, 1984, The Empire Strikes Back was released to home video. 
I found an article from November 23rd in the Los Angeles Times listing videos current hits that said The Empire Strikes Back is destined to be one of the big hits of the Christmas season. At the time of this article, The Empire Strikes Back was number three on the Billboard magazine sales chart with Romancing the Stone at number two and Sitting Firm at number one was, of course, Jane Fonda's workout. Prices for this thing were all over. It really depended on where you were shopping. I found one store running a deal on VHS and Beta. If you purchased Star Wars and The Empire Strike Back, you would get them for $59.98 each or $79.98 separately. Tower Records had it on Laserdisc for $29.98. And another store said that you could get it for free on uh, Selectivision if you were to buy a RCA Selectivision player. Um, now, if you didn't have VCR, well, don't worry about that because you could rent them for $20 a week or $5 a day. Um, now, I didn't continue to follow the history of uh, this film, but I assume it continued to be a big deal. <laughs> I remember hearing about it once or twice. What is it called? Star what? The Empire Strikes Concrete? Something. <laughs> Struck something. I think it's uh, I Cement. Know. I think cement. that's what it was. Cement. That was cement. Yeah. It's a good one. Nice. Yeah, I, I still got a bunch of old VCRs. I, if I could rent them out... For five bucks, five bucks a, a day, day now, man. Hey. Oh, that'd be awesome. I got a select division right there. You can get 10 <laughs> bucks like, a day for that. <laughs> it doesn't work. The uh, need some work. You just have to okay. find what part of the planet is still using that technology. It has to be somewhere. <laughs> I don't know. Mike Ranger over there, he drove about six hours all over New York and Pennsylvania to pick up a Betamax uh-huh. and a RCA select division just uh, over the past two weeks. So kudos to Mike Ranger. For nostalgic reasons, um, you know, purely to um, watch Meatballs Part Two. That was it. <laughs> I just want to see it in every format available. <laughs> All right, Man Crush, what do you have for the Hut Products round? All right, so November thirtieth, nineteen seventy four. This one, this is one of those picks where it's near and dear. I remember all these words hitting my ear. It was every day right after snack when we would all congregate to the back. Sitting around the circle in Miss Blue's kindergarten class, legs folded, trying not to act like an ass. Kyle ran in, kicked over a stool. He was a little fuck, the biggest dickhead in school. Miss Blue read Where the Sidewalk Ends, a book that everyone highly recommends. It sold nearly 5 million copies around the globe. That afternoon, a few friends of mine saw Miss Blue disrobe. Beware. <laughs> what? Bathrooms in kindergarten have no lock. <laughs> Little Herbie had to pee so bad, he nearly went into shock. <laughs> he ran and sprung open the bathroom door. All of the kids that were close saw a bush they couldn't ignore. <laughs> Miss Blue was hunched over, caught mid-wipe. Not exactly bent over like she was waiting for a pipe. Herbie and the kids couldn't fathom what they'd seen. Remember to block the door before your shitting routine. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the best-selling worldwide classic kids book, Where the Sidewalk Ends by Shel Silverstein, the best-selling children's poetry book of all time. And yes, that story that inspired my poem actually happened. It had the ring of authenticity to it. (laughs) Although... (laughs) Poor uh, writer of that book, uh, Shel Silverstein, is spinning rapidly in his grave right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Alan, why didn't I come up with that shit, man? <laughs> why didn't I just? Why did I always keep my language so clean? 
<laughs> wow. Okay, we got speed on VHS, which is very significant, but you know, it's 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 lost a little bit of its luster. The movie Speed, because of cruise control. <laughs> Empire Strikes Back makes it on the VHS. Just also, it kind of you know, it's in this, the the uh, crowd of another just this massive franchise with so many high points. It's almost like it has only high points in it. You know, just gets better and better, strength to strength. But where the sidewalk ends, speaking as a parent, I know the, uh, the great uh, contribution that poetry and cartoons and nice illustrations and books and a way for parents to interact with children. I know how valuable that is in uh, raising up the next generation of, of intellectuals like yourselves. So I would have to say, I'm, I'm going to see, I'm going to con consult the celebrity wheel just to make sure that I get full and total agreement. First, Sam Elliott. And Sam Elliott will say 100%. Jim Dredd on this one. Shel Silverstein, where the sidewalk ends. That's the one. Hell yes. Thank you, Sam. All right. Well, you heard it from Sam Mancrush. You picked up two points. You take the lead in this one, heading into the movies round. Would you like to go first, or you have the option to defer? Uh, you know what? I'll defer. I just went last as last round, so go ahead, Mark. I'll throw it to you. All right, gentlemen, you know, last episode, I, uh, I dug around and I, I found a negative review for Star Wars, something that you didn't think you'd be able to find. You know, sometimes negative reviews are, are hard to find for some of these really good classic movies. Sometimes that's all you're going to find is negative reviews. Well, for my pick this week, I wanted to find a good review for this film, and I did. And it's by the legendary Roger Ebert. The headline reads, Junior Schwarzenegger muscles in on Mama. The wonder is not that Arnold Schwarzenegger plays a pregnant person in Junior, but that he plays one so well. He has an uncanny idea of what will work and what won't. And since you walk in expecting almost nothing to work, the result is sort of a deliverance. As an actor with big muscles and a balky Austrian accent, you think he'd be limited, and yet... He knows himself so well, and it gives him the freedom. Is a pregnant Arnold harder to believe than Arnold as Conan the Barbarian? Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Junior, released November 23rd, 1994, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, Danny DeVito, and the lovely Emma Thompson. Wow. Okay. I know it's not the Arnold classic, and you don't find raving reviews for this, but the fact that Roger Ebert himself just gloats about this movie... And if you've seen Arnold's performance in this, I'm not sure if Roger Ebert saw the same cut of the movie everyone else did. So anyway, that's my movie's pick, Junior. Excellent. Excellent. All right, Mike Ranger, what did you bring for the movie's round? Well, Mark, on November 9th, 1984, movie patrons never slept the same way again when Wes Craven introduced Freddy Krueger in A Nightmare on Elm Street. Johnny Depp, John Saxon, Robert England, Heather Langkamp, they all star in a movie that ruined my childhood and uh, still manages to fuck up my sleep from time to time. Uh, the film grossed $25 million at the U.S. box office against a budget of $1.8. And uh, they've got the birth of a franchise, horror icon, six sequels, TV series, a crossover, a remake. Uh, despite all of this, uh, Man Crush still managed to find a review of this film that gave it like a star and a half. <laughs> did you save that i didn't i was actually hoping uh, that you could recap that uh, i don't know the guy he pretty much just said it was shitty yeah 
Fuck that guy. He's like, don't, he's like, don't go watch it. It's dumb. Yeah, he can be trusted. Start out. He was probably someone from the American Dermatological Institute or something. <laughs> Certainly wasn't Roger Ebert, that's for sure. No. <laughs> <laughs> he was butchering him because of his face. All right, Man Crush, why don't you wrap up this game with your movie's selection? All right, let's head back to November 15th, 1974. And it seems like every time I get to the 70s, I pick a Charlton Heston movie. And I sure do hope Jim can judge this round a glorious Heston voice. That would be fantastic. Uh, last time I selected the Omega Man. And this movie, it looks like it in terms of visuals. It's stunning. That said, for 1974, the effects in this movie are amazing. Uh, Mike can attest this. We talked about this while we were waiting for you last week. Uh, we started talking about this movie. You know, I typically cannot stay focused for a two-hour movie. But this movie had me fully engulfed. And more than that, I've seen this movie multiple times, and I really can't get into a movie that's two-plus hours twice without fading. Yet I watched it again last night, and for the first time, it was probably the first time in years I've seen it, and I was ultra-engaged. So either it's amazing storytelling or my attention span has gotten better. I'm not sure you guys be the judge of that. But like I said before, the effects were amazing in this. And in spite of that, it did not win an Academy Award for best cinematography, but it was nominated for it. It lost out to towering Inferno instead. Although it did win two Oscars for best sound and the special achievement award, which I think is what they probably give out when they nominate you for a bunch of shit, but you win nothing. So it's like a participation trophy. I don't know. Uh, but the movie would go on to make a whopping $80 million. This is 1974. So that's just over $420 million in 2020. So it did fairly well at the box office. The movie, it's super well done. At the end of the movie, this is what we were talking about last week, you get that empty pit in your, the, just, you feel like garbage at the end of this movie. I can't even explain it. You realize that this is something that could realistically happen. Maybe not the heroics of Charlton Heston or George Kennedy, but the disaster in itself could actually happen. And I recall in the early 90s, uh, my parents brought me to Universal Studios and we went on the attraction Earthquake the big one, and it was terrifying. Uh, so if you're into natural disasters, Walter Matthau as a town drunk, Charlton Heston's bravado, death counts that put Rambo to shame, and something more frightening than a horror movie, then go out and watch the classic Earthquake. Because it really is. And quick question. Did Charlton Heston have in his contract, uh, it was like in his rider or something, that he had to have sex with a woman that was half his age? In every movie in the 70s? I think so. Because he did the same thing in The Omega Man. Yes, that was part of the contract that uh, I made sure my agent made it very clear to any producers that I would have to have sex with at least uh, one woman that was half my age and two women who were three times my age <laughs> and one barnyard animal. <laughs> now, he's, now he and, and Shel Silverstein are both rolling over in their graves. <laughs> and that's going to create an earthquake an earthquake what is that feeling well you grew up through this movie. i grew up through, i even grew up through the earthquake that inspired it so yeah I, I, i'm all over this thing and i still remember parts of this movie i remember you mentioned walter matthau is in the movie and walter matthau has this has such a small part in the movie that you wonder yep. was walter matthau really in this movie but he is like no lines, very oblique, uh, kind of almost like a glorified extra. Like he was on the lot one day and said, hey, 
Uh, do you mind if I uh, step in and be a part of this uh, scene? Just <laughs> I, uh, you know, because he just kind of comes in and dances around, and and then there's even a another shot where you think, well, there's that character again, but strangely, it doesn't look quite like Walter Matthau anymore. As if they went, we need. Oh, you're talking about where they're in the parking garage? Uh, yeah, in the parking garage. Like you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't yeah, look yeah. like him, but it's the same character. Like they went, or oh, here, Ben, you're you're about the same height as Walter Matthau. Yeah, but I'm 30 years younger. I don't care. Put this on. He was wearing. It. Go in there. Go, 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 go now. Which which happens in movies. They have to put somebody in sometimes. I've been replaced in movies where suddenly, hey, wait, I played that character. Why is he? Why is he in the front of the church? <laughs> but it's funny that you say that because I had, like I said before, it's been years since I saw it, and I always forget. I don't know if it was a cameo. I'm not sure how big Walter Matthau was in 1974. Big. He was big. big, yeah. So he just like showed up and he's like, you're watching it and you do a double take. You're like, I know who that is, but that can't be him doing that role. Cause like you said, he doesn't have yeah. any lines. He's just a drunk at the it's bar. It's a little like Bob Odenkirk when he shows up at the end of Little Women. You're like, wait, what? what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? Here? And you'd expect him to have lines. That's what kind of throws you off. Walter Matt. Yeah, that's why I think it was just a kind of a hey, uh, you know, you know what, you know, let's have a kick. You want to go in there and be part of it? Sure, sure. And you just you got to dress like a clown. Drunk. <laughs> anyway, but we're getting away. I'm stalling here because this is tough. It's a question of something that leaves you with a an empty pit in the base of your stomach. Uh earthquake. Uh, a, a movie that makes you that spawned a franchise that robbed perhaps tens of millions of uh, people of sleep and a Schwarzenegger movie where he was <laughs> so this is a real toss-up real toss-up well I again I'm gonna have to go to the celebrity wheel because this is just too hard for me to adjudicate with my own personality there we go and we've got He's going deep George W. Bush okay I'll tell you what, uh, at, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is a heck of a good actor <laughs> and, uh, for him to, uh, to, uh, duplicate, uh, being in the throes of, a uh, of impregnante delicto is, uh, that's, that's worth a couple of Oscars and maybe even a, maybe even a, a, a Tony <laughs> for my money. So put me down for, put me down for Arnold all the way. He used to be a good Republican too, as I recall, <laughs> if I remember right. All right. Man. Man crush. You know what that means? We're tied going into the final wild card round. Woo. All right. I'll go first for this one. Uh, we're going to go over to November 11th, 1994. Uh, and I'm going to go with a movie for the wild card round. Oh boy. Now people are going to wonder why didn't you pick this one? For the movies round, and why did you go with Junior? Because Junior's never come up on this show before, and I believe this movie has. I don't believe it's come up as a pick, but we have talked about it. It is the Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise classic, Interview with a Vampire. Mm, mm, uh, right. This movie was a phenomenon in the box office. It's based on the Anne Rice novel. For me, the standout in this movie is uh, Christian Slater, who just delivers such an awesome performance, and he's not even in that much of the movie. Walter Matthau has a little, little part. <laughs> he's one of the corpses that gets killed. You see him wriggling around a little bit. He's not quite dead. <laughs> he just walked on and said, hey, well, yeah. let me just be. What are you doing things. here in a vampire movie? Huh? I've never been in one of those. You mind if I lay down there next to that healthy looking woman? 
The movie costs about $60 million to make, and the cumulative worldwide gross, $223 million. Not to mention that this movie is on TNT, TBS, and USA pretty much every month. So, I give you Interview with the Vampire, The Vampire Chronicles, November 11th, 1994. Nice. All right, Man Crush, what do you got for the wild card round? Let's see if you can uh, keep your winning streak alive. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, since you went with movies, I'm going to stick with movies. Let's go apples to apples here. And this is one since we talked about the select division earlier. I never talk about this movie within the Man Crush 3 because I don't think it played out where I watched it as much as Friday the 13th, Grease. What's the third one, Mark? Airplane. Airplane. That's right. Good. I was testing. The big three. Very good. That was the big three. But this was like, maybe it was the fourth because I watched it quite a bit. I'll keep this one short. The dates are all over the place because in the 70s, sometimes they had sporadic release dates where one part of the country got it. So this was released in November, but it was also released in countless other months. But I'm just going to read what it says on the box. It says, the most talked about, highly acclaimed family picture of our time. And then it says dot, 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 maybe all time. And I think that's true because this is a movie about a stray dog that saves two kidnapped children. It's Benji. Benji. Or in France, Bonji. <laughs> Bonji. <laughs> you know what I remember most about this whole movie? Was the fact that he was eating pudding out of a cup. And it always grossed me out. Because he found it in like some <sighs> random house and just started eating it because he had no food. Mm. But good old Benji. Mm. Taking that one to the end. See what happens. All right, let's throw it down to Jim Meskimen for the final ruling on this game. Oh, it's between just the two of you. That's right. This was the, oh, gosh. <laughs> well, it's a simple choice between Interview with a Vampire and Benji. <laughs> Not apples to oranges it's, at all. It's a stray dog that saved two kidnapped children. You know, there was a, there were, there was a kidnapped child in Interview and the Vampire. That's what brings those two movies together. In fact, yeah. Benji is considered... Interview with the Vampire 2. It's the prequel. I don't know if you realize that. <laughs> wow. Well, the uh, the Neil Jordan-directed Interview with the Vampire is a very stunning, bleak work. Uh, not not a little homoerotic, if I don't mind, if you don't mind me mentioning it. And uh, and beautifully shot. And it has Stephen Rea in it and Kristen Dunst in it and Walter Matthau, as I mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> Benji, uh, you know, I missed Benji. I wasn't watching a lot of dog movies at that time, which is strange. That was what year was Benji? 74? 1974. You got to bring up uh, Peter Breck, Deborah Wally, man, Patsy Garrett. Oh, man, those are real 70s names. Real <laughs> 70s names. You know, my mom, Marion Ross, was on TV during that time, and yes. I, I watched a lot of happy days but i and those i used to go to events with her where there would be all the big hot tv stars at the time and captain and tenille and the the charlie's angels and i saw all these human beings it was like oh my god it was astonishing um anyway the name dropping is not helping me get it anywhere closer to a decision i think i have to go gentlemen i have to go to the wheel again because i personally cannot make the adjudication but surely one of these gentlemen can Andre the Giant. Okay. Yes. So, for my money, Benji. 
because <laughs> the dog was so cute, a small little dog, eat the secondhand pudding and uh, live through that. So he must be the one who should win. Yeah, that's my choice. Oh, <laughs> thank you, Andre. You're very welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. Man Crush keeps the winning streak alive at five. With Benji. Benji. Wow. He saved two kidnapped children and me from losing this game. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That was a great game, guys. Thank you. And thank you, Jim, for uh, showing up today with all your friends. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah. It sure helped me. I tell you, these are two difficult choices to make. But, it's, you know, when you go to another personality, suddenly it becomes very simple. Well, you did a great job as a judge. Thank you so much. Now, Jim, you've worked in television, film, uh, mm -hmm. video games, stand-up, yep. improv, even doing custom gym impressions. Right. What's your favorite medium to work in? Like, I do like I do like recorded stuff. You know, I like being able to hide the body completely and be just a character that that we hear and kind of, you know, when we listen to it, we sort of mock up in our minds what this thing looks like. And uh, I don't like I, I like to be able to as a listener to contribute to an art form, you know? So like, I'm not a big gamer because it's sort of all there, you know, it's, it's right in front of you. You kind of have to, you see every bolt, every glistening bead of sweat on everybody. And like, what, what do I really have to, to give to this? You know, obviously playing is a contribution, but since I don't do that, I have no reality on it. But so I, I do like the auricular channel, if you will, to, to create sound. And that's why I've directed tons of audio books. Um, yeah. GoldenAgeStories.com Golden if you want to see some amazing audiobooks that I directed many, many hundreds of hours of. And I do audiobooks today. And uh, you know, obviously, I do a lot of impressions and stuff for my YouTube channel and, and for the world, you know, uh, films and television and things like that. Nice. Now, you touched on it earlier, your mom, Marion Ross. Uh, now, your entire family has worked in the industry, including yes. your wife and your daughter now. My daughter, my, my brother-in-law, my sister, yeah. and my mom. And before he died, my uncle. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we're pretty much, a, a you know, but mom is the, she's the tip of the spear. She's the, the great icon. And uh, she had the most, uh, you know, flame from from the fuse on liftoff uh, i'm sure there's a nice 10 yard german word for that but she she really had so much intention as a 15 year old girl growing up in albert lee minnesota to be somebody in the movies and and to have that kind of glamorous life and she got in just at the tail end of it and then uh raising two kids as a single mom my parents were divorced so she raised my sister and i and uh, as an actress uh in the 70s and she was on all those shows and then Happy days happened, and that was the beginning of a whole other level of uh, of, of uh, professionalism. Now, how old were you uh, during her big happy days run? Well, it was 11 seasons, so it was quite a spread of my life, but it began when I was about 13. I think they did the pilot when I was 13 or 14, I remember. Yeah, and then it, and it took a while. To, it didn't sell at first, and it went away for a long time. Everybody forgot about it. Then it came back because Ron Howard did American Graffiti. And that was a big hit. And at that time, Michael Eisner was the head of Paramount. He went, wait a minute, don't we have a pilot on the shelf that has Ron Howard in a 50s environment? And they went, well, by the way, we do. Yes, as a matter of fact. So that is what, like a year or more later, uh, created that affluence. Nice. Yeah, and you bring up Ron Howard and yeah, you know, yeah. kind of how this whole episode came about is good friend of the show, Bo Beecraft on Twitter, had tweeted out something to you and I saw it and it just the day before, 
I was watching Frost Nixon with my wife, and I pointed you out to her. And wow. it's funny. We talk about how, you know, actors will have, like, no lines in a movie and stuff. You know, Walter <laughs> Matthau doesn't get any lines. Yeah. They put you in Frost Nixon, <laughs> the impressionist, all? and you don't have any lines. <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> no. <laughs> but I got to drive the car. That was nice. I was the one of the of the Nixon team. There were a few of us, and uh, I got to drive the car. I felt very good about that. Yeah, so I'm like, look, that look, honey, that's Jim Meskimen. He's an impressionist. She's like, <laughs> Why isn't he saying anything? <laughs> you know, I've never thought about that. That's really pretty funny. Oh my gosh! I don't want to get too far away from it. You're talking about Happy Days. How much time did you spend on the set? Do you remember any stories from uh, things that had happened? Oh, as much, as much as I could, as much as I could. I mean. Uh, I remember going, I remember the first time I went to the set, it was still single camera. I remember wandering around and being, having to be really quiet. I hadn't been on a lot of sets before, you know, cause my mom is a guest player. She would never bring us along to, you know, a day player thing or, you know, so I never visited many sets, but happy days. This was a solid job for her. I remember being very quiet, meeting Tom Bosley, meeting Henry and those guys. And, uh, you know, it was all on sound stages. It wasn't like a multicam shoot cause it was a single cam shoot. And I remember Henry Winkler standing over to the side in the soundstage, smoking a cigarette. And I remember in my, you know, youthful kind of brashness, I came up to him and I went, I see you're smoking. That's, that's not very admirable. <laughs> you shamed the, shame the Fonz for smoking. Well, he wasn't even the Fonz yet. The show hadn't even aired yet, I don't think. And, 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 but he was kind of like, yeah, that's right. I'm smoking. And first of all, he's smoking in a soundstage, which of course he's never done anymore. The second thing I remember is that I thought of him as being just an impossibly old person uh, compared to myself. And he was probably 22. Wow. He just looked that way because of all the smoke. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> that was wild. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. And, and yeah, it was, it was great to visit the set. And later on, when I was a teenager and could drive myself, I would go down on every Friday that they were filming. Like every Friday, I would go and watch and sit in the stands and watch them film. And it was exciting because a hit show back in the 70s was a global phenomenon. Right. It was, you know, truly everybody was watching it on Tuesday nights at eight o'clock on ABC. And so it was the, the aura uh, and atmosphere of excitement in stage 19 and Paramount Studios was just palpable. You know, people were just going nuts, you know, and they, they would introduce the cast in the beginning and people would, yay! And then Henry would come out, the Fonz, and they would go apeshit, completely apeshit, like Elvis apeshit. They would scream and squeal, and he would be kind of really cool. He'd come out and go, hey, you know, and then come back. And probably backstage, we'll go, can you believe this? It's amazing. <laughs> Until he jumped the shark. Until he jumped the shark. Now, I'm in that episode. No shit, really? Really? And let's, you, you can go back and look at it, and you will see me on the beach. I'm the one who announces that there is a shark out there. And that Marineland is going to come and pick it up. Oh, <laughs> Only decades man. later do we realize, what? <laughs> 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 yeah, so I spent a few days on the beach shooting that. How was that taken at the time when that happens? And now we always, you know, everyone says like, oh, you jumped the shark or whatever. Right. At the time, did it feel like that? I mean, I was too young. Not at so, all. Well, yeah. the other weird thing about that is it's come to be known as a phrase that means wow, they're doing anything to stay alive. Right. They're, they're doing just trying to keep attention on them, right? That, I was told, is season five of 11 years. So I don't think anybody had a concept that it was 
a, a desperate act. I think they were just having a really fun time and going, hey, uh, let's have the Happy Days guys. They go to Los Angeles. They go to Hollywood. They go to the beach. What's he going to do? It's got to be some kind of contest. Uh, hot rods? Nah. Jump, a, jump over a shark with water skis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think they were just behind it. Yeah, why not? Too funny. I'm going to have to go watch that now. Yeah, you'll see me. I've never looked so ripped. Not that I'm very ripped. I've never looked quite. I was going to the beach a lot. I was swimming a lot, and I looked pretty good. Just before I went off to college and and almost burned out. But uh, uh, that was a good experience. And I was with the the, the director's son, Jerry Paris' son, uh, Andy Paris, was with me. We were were throwing these. So obviously there was a little... (laughs) I'm a little nepotism at work, (laughs) but I was an actor. I was, I had done plays and I was, uh, you know, kind of leaning towards being an actor. I didn't make a full commitment to it until I was in my twenties. But uh, at that time I was kind of like, yeah, I can do this. I know how to do this stuff. That's pretty awesome. This is completely different than (laughs) happy days. But one of the things you have on your YouTube channel, you do a lot of these deep fake videos. Yes. I've done quite a few. Yeah. That are scary as shit. Like, it's because it's so believable. Yeah. Do you get people that like come after you with it? like, ah, I didn't do that's not me. Like, Oh no, no, number- I've not had any celebrity response of any of those things. And I think it's because my intention is not to, uh, I mean, it's pretty clear. I'm trying to entertain. Yeah. And, and You're just, yeah, exactly. I'm not saying anything that someone would go, Hey, I don't believe that. What are you trying to tell me? Everything's really <laughs> like it's innocuous kind of viewpoints and stuff and poems that I've written. So, uh, no, but I, mo- you know, that first one that went viral, uh, pity the poor impressionist where I did 17 or 18 or yeah. maybe more characters. And they, it, it's a guy named Shamuk who is in uh, Manchester, England. And he contacted me and he's the guy, the technician that does the deep fake part of it, which is a lot of work. And he does a great job. And he showed me an, a sample and he said, do you want to do something? And I went, yeah, that's amazing. And this first one went legitimately viral and um yeah it was uh what was i gonna say i can't remember but uh oh i know a lot of people responded i got tons of comments and most people said this is really cool i'm really scared yeah it's frightening yeah and then you did the wash your hands one which was fantastic thank you oh nice yeah yeah that i thought that i thought would go pretty viral but apparently it wasn't topical enough yeah <laughs> i don't know about you that but <laughs> deep fake covid uh, no buttons i guess nothing to, nothing to really pique anyone's interest but <laughs> I, think it's a nice piece. I, I thought it was topical and i thought thank it had you. a good message thank you so much so. i appreciate it yeah i, I uh, i've done a few i i don't know how many more uh we're gonna do but uh, you know now it's now it's sort of like broken open now there's like uh, the the uh the apps are now readily available to almost anybody. And so it's now it's like, okay, well, this is a tool. Uh, Deepfake is a tool, just like Photoshop was a tool or digital editing was a tool. Right. What are you going to say? You know, what are you going to do right. with it? Yours are amazing though. I've seen them with the apps. You could pick those out. Yeah. The guy that did yours yeah. must be ultra talented because you can't even tell. I mean, obviously like when you're doing like Ron Swanson, his body is smaller, but his head is perfect. His head is a perfect size. That melon of his is comparable to mine, <laughs> but it weighs six ounces less because I have more fillings than he does. <laughs> I think the the deep fake that that freaked me out the most and kind of was the dead giveaway was the the Morgan Friedman at the end. 
Yes, that one <laughs> that, that does strain credulity. Yeah. <laughs> but I but I don't agree with people that say, well, that's is that black a form of blackface? I'm like, oh, come on, come on. Yeah, it's, it's no, it's called, an impression. It's an art it's form, different. if you don't it, mind. We have a little freedom of speech here, at least in the arts. Is that okay? Particularly right. when I'm being nice and not saying anything bad. You know? Right. <laughs> Give me a break. I love Morgan Freeman. I couldn't do an impression of Morgan Freeman if I didn't adore Morgan Freeman. You can't really do really good impressions of people unless you have a high level of affinity for them. It's just not possible. You wind up mocking them. And right. There are plenty right. of people that do that, but I'm, I'm not interested in that game. That rolls really good into my next question, and is that you talk about what are a couple of characters or people that you've always really wanted to be able to do, but just never, never could quite get it or to a level that you were happy with it? Oh, well, you know, because of my physical stature and the equipment that I've been given by fate and genetics, uh, there's many, many voices that I can't <laughs> approach. In fact, people often say, is there anyone you can't do? And I say, well, most people I can't do. Uh, you know, we've got 8 billion people on this planet. I do about 65. That's a very small percentage. But there, I mean, obviously, if I could, if I could really hit Orson Welles deeply and resonantly, it would be, you know, I wouldn't have to do anything else. I, I'd just sit around all day and do Maurice LaMarche. Yeah. <laughs> See, I was thinking about that because you do this great bit with your wife where you guys have somebody randomly throw out a historical figure. Right. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or, you know, so like, there must be a character in there somewhere. You're like, oh, if I could just fit this in this bit, it would be fantastic. And that's why I had thought of that. Is I just I love that bit you do. It's huh. it really merges the improv right. side of it with the impression side really perfectly. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we did that for years and years in New York. Yeah. I got very facile at it. It's great. Uh, you know, creating stuff with improv, as you probably know, is very easy once you train yourself to go with that first idea and to just run with it. And whatever pops in your head, just run with it and have no, no kind of reservation about it. And, and I, I got very thoroughly trained in that and, and did it on stage in New York for a decade. And it, it, it sticks. <laughs> it's, right. it's nice. Yeah. And then, you know, memorizing lines is much harder. But I, I, do, love, I do love to take on a, you know, anything. That's why I love the wheel. And go, kind of go, Matthew McConaughey, all right, great. So we're talking about... Uh, voices and things like that well uh uh interview with a vampire okay i thought it was gonna be uh dick cabot but it turned out to be something <laughs> completely different oh man now that you say dick cabot and interview dick with cabot. a vampire i kind of want to see that version I, I, I would like to see that too now dick cabot is a voice that i can do uh, under certain circumstances that uh, uh <laughs> very very tight pent-up sort of voice he's very protective of his voice i think or, or protective of of expressing himself too stridently and so he, uh, he always had very reserved kind of thing but he would make these little barbs would be interesting say well now you you have been alive uh for a long time uh, as vampire, uh, do, you, do you have a driver's <laughs> license? Has it expired? <laughs> One of the things I love about your YouTube, you do that thing with the fortune cookies, and I see the fortune cookie like taped onto your board right there. That's it. Before you leave us, cookie. can you read us a fortune? Oh, sure. I got to get a cookie. Hold, hold on, I'll be right back. I just gotta get a cookie. No problem. I got it right here in the cookie box here from the Golden Bowl Fortune Cookie Company. We buy them by the you know, a few hundred at a time. So the demands for my fortune cookies readings are so <laughs> tremendous. We have to keep a constant supply. Since this is radio, I'm going to give value. That sounds nice. Foley. 
like an ASMR video. This little piece of this little piece of cellophane has come all the way all the way from Beijing. So <laughs> now this particular one is very but it's already pre pre crushed. So the, but it does have a fortune in it. All right, here we go. I'll get the spin around here. Woody Allen, you know. So Woody Allen's gonna gonna read the fortune here. Um, let's see. Sometimes it's interesting how you know they relate. Sometimes the celebrity and the fortune. You, can, there's a confluence that sometimes happens. The juxtaposition is extraordinary. Uh, okay, education's purpose is to replace an empty mind with an open one. Or it's not a fortune, which is often the case. And very seldom is there actually a fortune in a fortune cookie. This is a piece. This is an observation. It could could be something you read on in an airline magazine or you know, <laughs> Boy's Life. You don't go to a Chinese restaurant and go, you know, I really want some advice about what the purpose of education. Well, is. That, I think that's one of my favorite parts about that video is it's not some every day. It's you reading a fortune cookie, but more or less you're debunking the fact that these are actual fortunes. They should be like more wisdom cookies or nugget of information. Or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> wisdom cookies. That's, yeah. I'm thinking of starting my own line of, of, Misfortune cookies, you know, talk about the dreadful things that could happen to you in a few hours after you leave. All the pieces of paper just say 2020 on them, you know, just. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They know more. Or if you had my poem before, you could say, remember to lock the bathroom door. That's right. Unless you want to see a little bit too much bush. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on with us. And if you have anything you want to plug, like plug your channel and stuff like that so people know where to find you. Oh, yeah. Go to YouTube, type in Jim Pressions, or if you can think of it, my name, Jim Meskimen, or Celebrity Fortune Cookie, or Deep Fake. Anyway, I'm all over YouTube. I got, uh, if you subscribe, I've got new videos, at least one video a day, often two or three. Also, actor tips. I give advice uh, to fledgling voice actors and uh, regular actors. And uh, as you mentioned, the deep fakes and a lot of other creative stuff. Also, I'm the voice of Colonel Sanders. I do quite a lot of uh, Colonel Sanders material, too, because uh, that's just a fun character to be. Uh, and uh, I don't get any money from it, especially, but uh, I do enjoy doing it. So there's just all, all kinds of stuff there. And I'm on Instagram at Jim Pressions. Very cool. That's why I picked the uh, Charlton Heston movie, because I saw the call yeah. between Colonel Sanders and Charlton oh, Heston, yes. the which is another great skit. Right. Those are fantastic. I'm glad you like them. They're fun to do. But thanks again, man. I really appreciate you coming on judging for us tonight. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks a lot, Jim. Okay, guys. Take care. Take care. Good night. All right, duelers. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to end this episode right here. But don't worry. If you've missed an episode, you can always head back to DuelingDecades.com where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, everywhere podcasts are available. But in the meantime, while you're on the interwebs, head on over to facebook.com forward slash dueling decades, where you can join our private group and share some of your very own retro memories. Until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Infirmary Media.